When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. I'm MSNBC's Ali Velshi. Welcome to the last episode of the Velshi Band Book Club, at least for this season. Today's meeting is a little different. We're featuring two authors who are no longer with us, but who have written novels, impacted culture, and carved a legacy that will never die. I'm talking about Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston. Morrison and Hurston share much in common, a mastery of the written word, an interest in exploring black womanhood and their role in American society, and the way in which they both expanded literary convention. Both women are revolutionary in their writing, their ideas, and their fearless demand for space in a society that did not want to make room. This last episode of season one of the Velshi Band Book Club is exploring the black literary canon in America and the contribution of these two giants. I really want to get into the books, so let's start with Beloved by Toni Morrison. During an earlier meeting of the Velshi Band Book Club, I noted the reasons a book can make an impact. I said sometimes it's the words on the page, sometimes it's the theme of the text, sometimes it's because of a remarkable author, and sometimes it's all three. Toni Morrison and her canon are all three, categorically. Today on the Velshi Band Book Club, we honor the prolific Toni Morrison and her work. Let's start with the woman responsible for the words. The late Toni Morrison is the author of numerous fiction, nonfiction, and children's books. She received the highest of honors for her work, including a Pulitzer Prize for Beloved, a Nobel Prize for her contribution to literature, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. Unsurprisingly, she was an avid reader as a child, later receiving an English degree from Howard University and a master's degree in American literature from Cornell University. Toni Morrison was the first black woman editor at Random House, not just publishing books from infamous Black Panther Party activist Angela Davis and the boxer Muhammad Ali, but getting them onto bookshelves. She famously wrote her first novel, The Bluest Eye, by finding any time she could during commutes home, on the backs of napkins, and when her two children were asleep. Without question, Toni Morrison's work expanded literary convention. Without Beloved or The Bluest Eye clearing the path forward for black protagonists and black authors, there may not have been a Dear Martin or an All-American Boys to feature on the Velshi Band Book Club. The very presence of these books on reading lists is not just revolutionary, it's a credit to Toni Morrison. We could have honed in on any number of Toni Morrison's books. The Bluest Eye and Sula, for example, have both been exclusively targeted for ban and are literary feats in their own right. But no book has captured the American attention and ire quite like Beloved. Many consider it Morrison's magnum opus. Beloved is one of those books that is challenging to summarize. Its nuance, lyrical language, and themes are as inherent to the story as the bones of the plot. As Toni Morrison once said, quote, It is not fast food. It is a meal that you should relish, end quote. 
Our protagonist is a former enslaved woman, Setha, living with just her youngest child, Denver. Setha was pregnant with Denver when she escaped from a Kentucky plantation called Sweet Home. Setha's two sons have run away. Her mother-in-law has died. Her husband has not been heard from since he started on the Underground Railroad, and her home is haunted by the spirit of her third child, referred to as Beloved after the engraving on her tombstone. Beloved is intertwined with painful memories of Setha's time at Sweet Home, dormant for many years until the arrival of an old friend from there. Setha dealt with unspeakable abuse and violence on the plantation at the hands of the sadistic farm proprietor called Schoolteacher. It culminates in a gut-wrenching moment, the theft of Setha's breast milk. Setha eventually escapes to Cincinnati, but only to have schoolteacher return for her and her children. Rather than stand by and allow her children to be taken back into slavery, she attempts infanticide, successfully ending Beloved's life in the very home in which she still resides. Beloved has been banned and challenged from many school districts in many states many times, numbering in the thousands. Last year, Glenn Youngkin, the current governor of Virginia, a state where slavery has an indisputable historical resonance, built his campaign on one mother's 2011 call to remove the book, even featuring the mother, Laura Murphy, in an ad. Her son, then a senior in high school, told the Washington Post that the book gave him nightmares, describing Beloved as, quote, disgusting and gross. It was hard for me to handle. I gave up on it, end quote. First, let me say definitively, Beloved is not written for children. It is simply not written for people or students who are unaware of the gruesome horrors of slavery or below a sophisticated reading level. No assigned reading should come without context, especially one like Beloved. High school seniors certainly have that critical context. Yes, Beloved is scary. I agree. Its themes are difficult, the destruction of identity from enslavement, subversion of motherhood and womanhood, the dire need for community, and the grip of the past. But it is not something we can just give up on, as Laura Murphy's son said. On the contrary, it is something we need to stay with. Beloved asks a lot of its readers. This is not a work of fiction you pick up to escape. It is active. It asks you to look squarely in the face of not only the institution of slavery in this country, but its continued effects, its literal haunting presence. Beloved encapsulates a visceral and painful part of American history. Shutting the cover of Beloved and removing it from the shelves will not make that past go away, and it should be hard to read about. It was written to be hard. I'm joined now by two Morrison experts and good friends of mine, Eddie Glaude Jr., chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, MSNBC political analyst and author of numerous books, and Imani Perry, professor at Harvard University and author of the National Book Award winner, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. While teaching at Princeton, Imani taught a popular graduate seminar called Tony Morrison, Texts and Contexts. Imani and Eddie have actually taught Toni Morrison together, and Toni Morrison herself taught literature at Princeton for 17 years. She played a key role in expanding the African-American department. What a big deal to have you both here. Um, and it allows us to study books where we can't get the author, obviously. We couldn't make Toni Morrison available, but you teach this course a lot. 
Why do you come back to it? What is it about Beloved that recurs? Is it just good literature that we should all hear, or is it the themes within the book? Well, there's a couple of pieces. I mean, one, it's historically so significant, right? It tells you the story of how slavery became a national institution with the Fugitive Slave Act, so that Setha runs away from slavery and she can be caught in Ohio. Um, it also tells the story of the post-slavery period, right? That sort of that interstitial period where the promise of citizenship became still elusive. But there are these human themes that are so important. What does it mean to try to make a life after so much trauma and violence? How does one not become completely defined by the brutality? How does one not be the thing which the large society says you are, right? So Setha grapples with being described as part animal by school teacher, right? And the struggle of the novel is actually a struggle about becoming, right? And sustaining oneself in the face of violence. So there's something about the book that um, is both historically significant, politically significant around race, and also it has a sort of deep human quality that yep. I think everybody can connect to. Uh, Professor Gallad, I, I, I've heard from Alan Welsh, one of our book club members, who says about Beloved and Toni Morrison, all my own sorrow, pain, fear, anger, and deep conviction all of a sudden made complete and total sense. It was as if somebody was telling me it's okay to feel the way I do and that there are real reasons that I do. Toni Morrison validated my own feelings in a way I have yet to experience in any other way. Toni Morrison's ability to layer so much truth, honesty, and feeling in so few words on each and every page simply astounded me. I cannot thank her enough, and just writing this brings me to tears. Um, so there's something about, as we discussed, sometimes it's the, the words, sometimes it's the author, sometimes it's the ideas. Uh, Toni Morrison's words and her ability to write in this way that evokes an emotional response is key to why it's important to write. Absolutely. And it's why writing good novels are so important to helping us become better human beings, to helping us see the world in very different ways. And Toni Morrison was a master craftsman in this regard. And part of what's so interesting about Beloved is that she's engaged in this ongoing conversation with the slave narrative. And the slave narrative doesn't give you a sense of the interior life right. of the slave. Because you remember the voice had to be authorized by a white preface, white person writing the preface saying, whatever follows is true. And so you got this book, that this narrative that's in the service of the anti-slavery uh, effort. But Morrison decides to go into the depths of it, give us a sense of what's happening on the inside of the person who has experienced the brutality of slavery. So that's really important. So we get a sense of, of the complexity of the human being. But also, this is not necessarily just fiction. Mm. Margaret Garner, January 1856, she leaves Kentucky, crosses over, declares herself free ends up at a friend's house, kites. Yeah. Fugitive slave folk tried to retrieve her. Yep. She tries to kill her child, but she's returned. So Morrison takes real life and makes it this epic. It's actually oh, oh, a, a very difficult story to choose, right? If you're going to choose uh, those experiences, Margaret Garner's and, and the killing of a child is a hard one to sort of popularize, which is why it's tough. But what choice do we have? I, I worry that people who say, I don't want my kid reading this book because it's uncomfortable, it's tough, it makes them feel bad. Yeah, but the society is tough. Living is tough. 
right? We, we are aware of unbelievable violence. This is not unusual, even in our own experience, right? And so to ask the question, well, what would have made a mother kill her child? Right. How does someone become that? And also, how does the community respond? So that, I mean, one of the things that Morrison does, which is so extraordinary, is that she always looked um, from the margins and allowed those on the margins to become witnesses. Here's a horrific act. How did this woman, how did she get to be this way is the question, right? And that's a challenge to the society. How does someone get to be that way, right? And at the end, when the phrase is repeated, it was not a story to pass on, right? Well, how do we avoid passing this on, right? Right. Uh, Eddie, we were looking at a few passages to highlight, and you have a a passage where uh, baby Suggs uh, supporting her granddaughter, Denver, as she tries to leave the house for the first time in a decade, ends with the line, know it and go on out into the yard. Go on. It's on page 288 of, of my version of the mm. book. Why is that important to you? Oh, it's the it. Mm. What is the it? Remember, baby Suggs delivers that love poem in the clearing where she tells, love this flesh, we flesh. Out there, they will <laughs> lynch your neck. They, they, you know, that wonderful love poem. And then the horror of Seth's act leads her to her bedroom to ponder colors. She gives up. God puzzles her because white folk can dirty you so bad on the inside you don't like yourself. They play checkers with her children. So here, Denver, knowing that embodied past, literally beloved, is consuming Setha. She knows that if she doesn't do anything, Setha is gone. She will lose her. So she's afraid to step off the steps. And so suddenly Baby Suggs, after this debate between her and Setha is replayed, Baby Suggs speaks to Denver. And she says, didn't I tell you why I have this limp? Didn't I tell you what Hallie did? Didn't I tell? But you said it was a route. I did. It is. Know it. Know it. But go on out of the yard. Don't be naive about the world. Don't be naive about the evils of the world. But we must act anyway, in spite of it all. No beloved, no buffalo. Know what they're capable of doing. But we must act anyway. We must live anyway. Dr. Glad, I had said earlier that the importance of what Toni Morrison did in, in establishing Black protagonists and characters, and, and as Dr. Perry says, with nuance, right, that they're not all universally good or bad. How much of a, a foundation has that been for either contemporary or subsequent uh, Black literature? Oh, absolutely. There's pre-Toni Morrison, post-Toni Morrison. And we want to be clear that she's not the inventor of Black protagonists, sure. right? So she stands in a tradition which she's signifying on regularly, right? Uh, whether it's invoking Ralph Ellison or James Baldwin or so many Black writers she's in conversation with. Uh, but there's a sense in which her insistence that we shift the burden of the white gaze, that we don't have to write books that are really all about uh, how white folks see us, but we can inhabit our language. We can ha- inhabit the kind of cultural spaces that work like oxygen, that are familiar to us, uh, books that we want to read. And I think she gives uh, uh, writers license to explore the fullness of our humanity, which means it's very complex and layered, mm-hmm. right? contradictory, not always everyone agreeing, having the same politics. And that's really key because Morrison sees us in our individuality and in, in, in its fullness as opposed to just simply being reactive to the current circumstances of our living. 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Let's go a little further with that. Um, in an interview in 2015 with The Guardian, Toni Morrison said, I'm writing for black people in the same way that Tolstoy was not writing for me, a 14-year-old colored girl from uh, Lorain, Ohio. I don't have to apologize or consider myself limited because I don't write about white people, which is absolutely not true. There are lots of white people in my books. The point is not having the white critics sit on your shoulder and approve it. Yes, absolutely. I think this is really important because um, I think there's a, a heavy burden often on black writers. What will white people think of this? That doesn't just come internally, but comes from the larger industry. But what Morrison shows is, and I, I think she understands this because she was an editor and she's an incredible reader as well, that the particularities of an experience actually are what allows you to access intimacy and resonance, right? There's some things that are fundamentally human, but if we're always sort of getting outside of ourselves, you actually don't access that which is fundamentally human. You don't have to be preoccupied with an other, right? If you're telling a story true, as Mm -hmm. you know, from the inside. I mean, Allie, I I don't get the jokes in Gogol's Dead Souls. I don't. (laughs) But it's something about the novel that speaks right. to me. Right. I don't understand the experiences necessarily that Keats is referencing. Right. But something powerful there. Right. So the experience, what does it mean to get at what it means to be a human being right. through the particularity of these Actually, your book about um, about James Baldwin uh, goes into a lot of that stuff. Exactly. And you make it very clear. You're not going to live James Baldwin's experience. Yeah. You're not going to identify with it no matter how hard he tries. But he's telling you something very human about That's his right. experience. Uh, Eddie, earlier you quoted a prayer, uh, uh, Baby Suggs. And, and mm. it says here, she said, in this here place we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Yeah. Why do you like that quote so much? Mm. Oh, my God. You know, it's an affirmation of, of who we are. And above all, love the heart, your beating heart. Mm-hmm. And then she dances. She gets happy with that crooked hip that doesn't quite work. You know, it's a world that is, that despises you. A world that is arrayed, organized in such a way that distorts your humanity. That um, says that you're less than. Where are the resources for you that you can find? Not only where you can respond to that world, but you can actually imagine yourself in the most expansive of terms in spite of it. It's a gorgeous love poem. The the body, the black body is an image. It's an idea. But the flesh is something that Mm. is living. Um, the flesh is something that they, those who possess it, right, have some control over. So she's subverting. Baby Suggs is preaching that we should subvert the meanings that have been applied mm-hmm. to a black body, right, and actually revel in it, right? I mean, it's beautiful. It's just a contradiction of the logic of white supremacy very directly. But remember, Tony doesn't leave you. Doesn't leave it that she's not a romantic. Yeah, that's true. Because she's Baby Suggs is the same one who gave us that love poem. Who's going to end up pondering colors? Right, because the world, because the world has dirtied it, you know, has yeah. devastated her. Right, but then she's the same one who gives Denver the advice. Right, there's an inheritance the there. Right, so yeah. Let's take a look at the text again. Arguably the most well-known passage in the entire book is a conversation between Paul D. and Setha after he learns about the mm-hmm. infanticide. Your love is too thick, he said. Too thick? 
Love is or it ain't. Thin love ain't love at all. Yeah. And it's beautiful, but it's complicated as with everything. It's not Pollyanna-ish. It's not romantic, right? Because the cost of that love was her um, capacity to care, right? And so the novel in some sense uh, is, it's a conversion story, right? From the isolation, from the rage, right? That was that moment created back to being in a kind of something closer to right relation with those around her to have. And, and at the heart of that, and this is another part of her relationship with Paul D, is him teaching Setha that she must love herself. Right. That she is her best thing. He says, you, your best thing. Right. And that can't be taken away from her, as the old folks say. And see, this is a really important point, because remember, when she's at Sweet Home, she doesn't have the ability to choose. Right. So there's no tragic action that can happen in the novel in Sweet Home. But once she crosses over into freedom, she can choose to love in the fullness in which she chooses, right? So Toni Morrison said, this is not Euripides' Medea. Mm. It's not some woman who's angry at somebody or jealous at a man. This is Sophoclean. It cuts much deeper. Mm. And so the tragic nature of her choice to, to love beloved enough to take her life can only happen, according to my reading of the novel, once she crosses over, once she crosses into freedom. Something else is at stake here. This is what gives it a larger canvas, it seems to me. So when Paul D says, your love is too thick, love is or it ain't. Right. This is a reflective of the nature of the transformation in her person once she moves from sweet home to one, two, four. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, it's wonderful because so much of her work is about inheritances and when we need to sustain them and when we need to break them. So there's this way that Denver yeah. brings the inheritance of baby silks, but also that Setha's mother is also someone who committed infanticide, right? And so there's this repetition of this question, will we keep doing what we have done mm -hmm. in the past in response to our wounds where we choose another course. So there's a large moral lesson that emerges from this question, right? What one chooses. You said something when she crosses um, uh, from Sweet Home to 124. Mm -hmm. 124. Mm -hmm. It's the address. Yeah. Uh, it's the house number. It's a, it's a character. Yes. Uh, 124 is a character. Uh, Setha says 124 was spiteful, full of baby venom. 124 was loud. 124 was quiet. So th there's something going on here. There's an evolution that you don't really see in many other books where they use that as a character. Toni Morrison does this very well in all of her writing, where she gives life to things you didn't know had life. And obviously in this book, because of haunting and things like that. Yeah, those first sentences in Toni Morrison's novel, they contain worlds. Yeah. You know, every one of them, quiet as his cat. But we were talking about, you know, all this stuff, right? Or so that, one, that wonderful first line of jazz. But um. Yeah, so this is a haunting story. This is a ghost story in yeah. some ways, right? So the, the house is haunted. It's vengeful. It's angry, right? And then once Paul D. enters and passes through the red light and literally beats back, right? This, this is what in some ways causes a beloved to literally, the past returns embodied, yes. right? But it's one, two, four. What's the street? Blue? Bluestone Blue Road. 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 Two, four, Bluestone Road. Which is an echo of, of the bluest eye. So. It is. I mean, I think this is the other thing. There's a, there's a way in which we can read the novel 
I think literally, right? Here's the beloved as a ghost who occupies the house and then comes back in physical form. But it says something also about how trauma functions, mm, yes. right? It moves around. It doesn't stay in a single body. It, right, it echoes. It, it becomes mm. something that, you know, this person and then affects this person and that person. There's collective traumas. And so it's an assertion about the way that wounds move about in our lives. So, right. That's so true. Is it? More, less, or the same relevant today to read Toni Morrison? She is one of the greatest American writers. Mm -hmm. And this is what, the question really speaks to what it means to be one of those writers who has, you know, world historical significance. It will always be time. Right. Right? To read her work. I mean, I think, and, and part of the reason... Uh, it resonates newly, right? The novels resonate newly is because she's saying something fundamental about the way our history made us, right? Yeah, and to echo that point, there are moments when we lose sight of ourselves. Mm. Moments when the ugliness of what human beings are capable of, yes. full view. And it's in those moments where the artists, the poets, the writers become all the more important. That's why they're the source of attacks. That's why Plato wants to ban them from the Republic, right? And in a moment like our own, when the ugly underbelly of the country is in such full view, oh, we need the witnesses more than ever. So I was hesitant because I agree with what Professor Perry says, that, you know, great writers are always in need of being read. Mm. But then there are these moments of crises, moral and ethical crises, where the poets have to speak loudly. Um, because we have lost our way. And so it makes sense that Morrison returns. Where do you put, we had this discussion before, as we were planning this book club meeting, about where, when dealing with Toni Morrison, you put Beloved in the canon in terms of, for our viewers who either want a refresher or are thinking about, hey, I love this conversation, I'm going to dig out some Toni Morrison and start reading. I mean, I think, you know, (laughs) Beloved is considered the masterpiece um, I think it's hard to start with Beloved. Mm. I mean, she's a very particular style right. that went and you, you can't zoom through her books. You have to read slowly and carefully. Um, I usually suggest Sula as the first or the bluest eye in Sula and then getting to, to Beloved. But it's the centerpiece, um, you know, of, of you, the body. You b- brought your copy of The Bluest Eye, right? Oh, absolutely. You share that view about how you get into this? I haven't read Bluest Eye since I was in my early 20s. And so I reread it this weekend, and it was just mind-blowing. It's almost as if it's a Rosetta Stone for the entire corporate. So much of the later novels can be, elements of it can be found here. Plus, we always talk about Piccola as the central character, but we were talking about this. It's Frida and Claudia. Yes, two little girls who witness everything in the novel. Yeah, so I'm actually a really big fan of Song of Solomon. Oh, yes. But you can't just jump into Song of Solomon either. So, you know, with Morrison... You have to just simply be careful because the writing is going to demand a lot right, of you right. as a reader. Yeah, and she's honest about it. And she was a uh, she was a book editor. I mean, she, she knows that not only as an author, but as someone who edited books for public consumption, that this stuff is going to be hard. This is not the, the, the kiddie ride yes. uh, for this. That said, Dr. Perry, is there anything in the reading of this that you think justifies the pushback on it. And I I, I say this because lots of books should have dialogue around them and people should say whether they like them or not. But the idea of removing these books from libraries and and school book lists, in fairness, is there anything you see in there that suggests that that should be happening or have happened? 
No. I assume you generally don't think books should be banned. I don't, I don't think books should be banned. I do think that it is important to talk about how pedagogically the ethics of engaging with this difficult kind of history. I do think that that teachers deserve scaffolding mm-hmm. when they bring this okay. into the classroom. How do you talk about this? How do you deal? When we talk about that today, right? Things that may be triggering, things that may be traumatizing, things that may be disturbing. We do need to teach young people to confront them, but we have to do it with care and attention. There's a lot that is very painful and beloved and also, I mean, really in the entire body of her work. But we had this discussion uh, when we talked about To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Because you've written, you've been part of a a book of essays about it to say, you don't, you you hear all the criticism, but that's okay. You can still teach something having heard all the criticism. Yes, absolutely. And in, in your stuff about James Baldwin, you you and I talked about the fact, and you write, write about it, that even James Baldwin stuff you struggled with in your early days because of the discomfort that he actually creates oh, in his writing. Absolutely, any great I think any great writer is going right. to move you off yeah. your off your center. Going to dis the aim is to disrupt how you see the world yeah. mm-hmm. in some absolutely. ways. So there's going to be discomfort. You know, I mean. Part of, I think, our current debate, Ali, is that discomfort uh, alongside of a, a clinging to adolescence. See, America, as a country, we refuse to grow up. Mm. And as a result, we want to be comfortable all the damn time. And when we have our artists refusing that luxury, <laughs> then we end That's up with these kind of silly bands. But you did write about the fact that you had your own evolution into where you got to a comfortable place with Baldwin. And I wonder whether that's relevant to this conversation that you both sort of suggested. You don't throw uh, a kid into a room with some Toni Morrison novels and give them reading assignments and tell them to come out and write (laughs) a book report. That scaffolding is so important. The scaffolding is an interesting point. Yeah, And I also think here's the other side of it. Part of the reason this is so difficult is because we rely on myths so much Mm -hmm. as Americans, right? So if we're told our history in mythological terms, it becomes very difficult to shift to realistic ones or to shift to the sort of the complexity of the human experience and so part of what it suggests is also that we ought to think about how we teach history distinctly as well. In part, I mean, Morrison appears in all of my work that's nonfiction because she's she's testifying to, to history, right? It's all the deeply historically researched. And so maybe it's, it says something to us about this should also make us think about how do we tell the story of this country, right? Um, maybe not in such mythological terms, maybe with more of the difficulty intact or the reality intact, the conflict intact. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm In my book, In a Shade of Blue, my own effort to kind of give voice to my distinctive version of pragmatism out, it happens through an encounter between John Dewey and Toni Morrison's beloved. Huh. That's in that phrase, know it, but going out of the yard mm. is my version of practical, intelligent action in the face of a world that is exacting choices from you. So Morrison is much more than a novelist for me. Mm -hmm. She's a critical, critical voice in understanding the human journey. I'm going to read the book again with all of your newfound criticisms. And if they'll let me on the Princeton campus, maybe I'll take a course. Thank you, Eddie Glaude, Jr., Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, MSNBC political analyst, and author of numerous books. But I won't say goodbye to Professor Perry just yet. 
After a quick break, she will be joined by Ibram X. Kendi on Zora Neale Hurston and her extremely influential book, Their Eyes Were Watching God. What a treat to have two National Book Award winners joining us. This is the Velshi Band Book Club. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Let's get into our second book and author. The life of American author Zora Neale Hurston is a story in and of itself, and one worth telling. She is not just one thing. She is a novelist, an essayist, a folklorist, a voodoo expert, a filmmaker. It is said she wrote her magnum opus, Their Eyes Were Watching God, in just seven weeks on a trip to Haiti. Like the strike of a match, Hurston burned bright and then was gone. She was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave in Florida at the age of 69, but in death, that flame has grown into a blaze. With the help of Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple, and an essay she wrote in the early 70s, both the public and literary circles have re-embraced Hurston. Today, she is considered one of the most crucial and influential writers of the Harlem Renaissance. Her name is on the same lists as Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou, and she is a favorite for college syllabi. In Their Eyes Were Watching God, our protagonist is the beautiful middle-aged Janie Crawford. Janie was raised by her grandmother, Nanny, whose life was shaped by her enslavement in the American South and by a fraught relationship with her own daughter. Throughout their eyes were watching God, Janie marries three times, once at the behest of her grandmother, once as a trophy wife, and then ultimately for love, with the much younger tea cake. Like Hurston, the novel is not just one thing. It is a love story, a feminist declaration, a coming-of-age exploration, and a celebration of the South. I read it as a love story. Janie, a foil to her old-school grandmother, can choose a relationship based on her own emotional desires and not just as a means for safety and stability. At its core, Their Eyes Are Watching God is an exploration of black modern womanhood. It tells the story of a woman searching for dignity and agency. Even today, the better part of a century since the novel's publication, the concept that women, especially black women, are worthy of the sort of love they want and have a right to choose is revolutionary. In 1997, decades after its publication, Their Eyes Were Watching God was challenged for ban in a classroom in Brentsville, Virginia. The reason, quote, sexual explicitness and language. This is a pattern that we've seen again and again in meeting after meeting of the Velshi Band Book Club. A parent blames sexual explicitness and language, but what they would really like to avoid is something else entirely, a conversation about race, sexuality, or female agency. Their Eyes Were Watching God packs a one-two punch. It explores both the realities of blackness in America and 
female sexuality. It spurs important conversations about black female agency, conversations that can and do contribute to the empowerment of young women who are reading this book for their honors English class. I'm joined again by Imani Perry, professor at Harvard University, who has written extensively about Hurston, and Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. Kendi is producing six children's book adaptations of Zora Neale Hurston's writings. Well, there's so much of Zora in their eyes. We're watching God. Uh, Tea Cake is apparently inspired by one of Zora's partners. Uh, Dr. Perry, I want to ask you, much of the book takes place in Eatonville, Florida, where Zora was raised. You've studied the South and, and you know it well. Is, is this an example of writers writing what they know uh, about or, or how much of this do you find to be autobiographical? Well, certainly is her writing what she knows about, but you have to remember that Zora was trained as an anthropologist, so what she knows about is pretty extensive. And she was writing against a backdrop of, you know, a period when people thought that Southern Black rural culture was in decline, that it was dying out. And part of her objective was to show, no, it's it's vibrant, it's rich, it's complex. And so she captures that, right? She has these sort of vivid characters, but you also get this sense of life in Florida, right? This is complex landscape. There's migrant laborers. There are people descended from slavery. There's recent Bahamian immigrants. There's indigenous people, Native Americans there. So it's a, it's something she knows, but it's something she knows both intimately and intellectually. Abram, let me ask you about um, when when this book was first published. It was slammed by Hurston's male contemporaries. Richard Wright, a prolific author in his own right, uh, credited with changing race relations in the U.S., famously derided the novel, calling it a, quote, minstrel show turn that makes the white folks laugh. And this is one example. There were lots of strong reactions. What, what were they based on and, and, and why did they happen? Well, unfortunately, if you're reading The Eyes of Watching God as a Black uh, American through the white gaze. In other words, you're thinking about how white people may be experiencing it. Uh, then you're going to read it very differently than if you're reading it from your own experience, from your own life, from your own values. Uh, and I think Zora wrote for Black people, but there were other uh, novelists at the time who in many ways wrote for white people. And they wrote characters who were either exceptional or characters who were living under the foot of white racism. And they did that because they wanted to expose uh, white racism or demonstrate uh, Black excellence. But, but Zora thought it was important to demonstrate the complexity of Black people, the imperfections of Black people. And that's actually what makes Black people human. Um, Dr. Perry, their eyes were watching God has got three narrators in it, Janie, uh, Phoebe, and Hurston herself at parts. Tell me about the significance of that. There's a, a bit of a call and response style in the book. Sure. I mean, you get, there's a there's actually a conversation that is happening. You know, Janie is this person who is not formally educated, but she has this passion for life. She's imaginative. She desires play and creativity and the like. And there's a way in which Hurston's voice actually supplements what, what Janie is yearning for, right? So we have Hurston's incredible use of language, right? And, and the way in which she draws from the folk vernacular to build these beautiful sentences. And then you have Janie's best friend, Phoebe, who is who 
in many ways, Jamie is making her case to explaining a life. She's a person who is uh, who is rejected by many for not fulfilling sort of the expectations of a respectable woman. And Phoebe actually is our is an audience that the that in many ways the public, the readers are akin to. And we actually begin to empathize with Jamie through her eyes. Dr. Kendi, this is an interesting situation where we've got a book that that young people uh, should read or at least should have access to. But you've you've done something else. You've actually helped create children's adaptations of it. Tell me about that. Why is it important for children to have access to to Hurston and, and what sparked the discussion about these children's adaptations that you're involved in? Well, at first, I think you mentioned her book being challenged in 1997 at at a high school in Virginia, Stonewall Jackson High School. That was actually my high school. And I ended up not reading Zora Neale Hurston in high school. And and I just think it's incredibly important for, for not just high school students, even elementary age students, even our babies, uh, the youngest of, of, of children, to, to be reading the, the beautiful uh, literature and short stories and the folklore that, that Zora created uh, as early as possible. And, and I think that's what's propelled me uh, and driven me to adapt some of Zora's uh, treasure show for children. Uh, Imani, Zora Neale Hurston and Alice Walker are linked because of Alice Walker's essay on Hurston in 1970. The imagery of Alice walking through the field looking for Hurston's grave is is visceral. Tell me a bit about that. Sure. I mean, uh, one of the things that's extraordinary is, and, and this is not unusual, but the loss of so many extraordinary writers, African-American tradition, and particularly Black women writers, and this tradition of going back, and it's incredibly robust in the 70s when when uh, Walker's doing this and actually restoring these writers to the appropriate prominence. And so Alice Walker actually, she embraces Hurston as her literary ancestor and actually brings her back to us. I mean, we wouldn't have Hurston the way that we do without Alice Walker. And I think, you know, that that tradition is a really important piece of what is happening in the context of African-American literature over the course of the 20th century. Uh, Dr. Kendi, we finally see the title, the reference to Their Eyes Were Watching God in chapter 18 of the book during a hurricane. The passage in the book reads, the wind came back with triple fury and put out the light for the last time. They sat in company with the others in other shanties, their eyes straining against crude walls and their souls asking if he meant to measure their puny might against his. They seemed to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God, end quote. Tell me about this moment. Well, let me actually just share what it meant to me. And the beauty about fiction is we can all interpret it, you know, in different ways. Uh, You know, towards the end of the book, Zora also writes Janie stating that there are two things that everyone needs to do for themselves. One is to be able to go to God, uh, and the other is to learn to love oneself. And so as you you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the, the, the critical importance of self-love, particularly among Black women, uh, but really for us all, is, is one of the defining themes of this text. And in many ways, when we're watching God, uh, we're also watching love. Dr. Perry, when I was doing that setup, I could see the two of you sitting there waiting. And I saw that when I talked about the fact that I read it as a love story and it was about self-love, I saw you sort of nodding. There was something there that you connected with. 
No, it's an it's an incredible love story, and it's sort of extraordinary that it resonates so deeply even today, right? So that, you know, there's all kinds of ambition in the novel. The men who Janie partners with, they have various kinds of ambition. Build a town or achieve wealth or be the best gambler in the world, right? And Janie just wants to have a life that is filled with beauty and love and play and delight and joy. And to have that portrait set against the the ugliness in many ways of the Jim Crow South is really, really potent and it still resonates, right? It's a fundamentally human uh, desire, right? To have a beautiful life. Dr. Kennedy, let's talk about the idea that this was published a long time ago. It was derided, it was criticized. The attention that it should have gotten was not given to it. And then it suddenly got that later for reasons that we have discussed. And it seems for a contemporary reader to be remarkably relevant today. Was it as relevant there? Was it a book ahead of its time? What what was the issue that causes this to be so important now and a subject for banning now? One of the markers of, of a classic literary text, uh, of a classic novel, is, is its enduring relevance, is its ability to literally uh, skip through the generations and, and still reach people. And part of that is is certainly because of the enduring relevance uh, and harm uh, that patriarchy, even within the Black community, still persists. Uh, part of that is because love uh, in love stories and people trying to, to find love and, and the emotionality of that journey is also so relevant, you know, and so meaningful to people. Dr. Perry, let's talk about Nanny. She and Janie are a foil in many ways. Talk to me about the representation of these two different generations in the book. Nanny is a woman who emerges from slavery and is trying to ensure for her granddaughter some degree of protection and stability and most importantly, sort of rest and comfort. Um, And as it turns out, Janie doesn't want to, you know, sit on a porch in comfort. She wants to sort of experience life fully. That is one of the many ways I think that we see the the same kind of generational tensions that existed way back then have a a somewhat different face, but but persist, right? Um, That, you know, the difference between the desire for security and the desire for a rich and full life. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, in contemporary times, that continues to be an issue for a lot of people and for a lot of women. Uh, Ibram, we had your stamped co-author, Jason Reynolds, on the Velshi Band Book Club to discuss All-American Boys. And I asked him about a teacher who assigns to kill a mockingbird alongside All-American Boys to get her classroom in, engaged. Um, would you pair their eyes were watching God with something uh, more contemporary to to help understand the point? South to America uh, would, 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 That's would, an would excellent great, answer. Uh, great pairing. <laughs> um, and because I, I think in many ways, I think it will allow people to, to begin to understand how what they're learning about, uh, what they're wrestling with, the tensions that, that Zora is portraying, uh, the ideas that, that she is sort of dancing with. Uh, I, I think Imani Perry's book uh, analyzes that, uh, curates that, discusses that. And, and so I think that would be a, a great, I think I would be a great pairing, but, but <laughs> um, you know, I'm biased because I, I love that book. I that, love this is a great book clubby way to do things, right? We're, we're going to talk about uh, your partner on the screen here. Uh, Dr. Perry, we talked about uh, South America with you when it came out. I'm hoping it has not been subject to any bans or, or challenges or, or has it. Am I wrong? Am I naive? 
I, I do not have that distinction yet. Um, but, but I wouldn't be surprised if one day that happens. But you, you make um, a good point, though, right? That it's it is it's a badge of honor these days. It's a distinction. Getting uh, getting uh, every bookstore you go by now has a banned book section, and I think there are people who actually go there to choose those books to to read them, which is why this is so much fun. I do want to ask you about the symbolism in the book of the mule. There's a mule that shows up throughout the book. What does that represent? Well, I mean, it's a sort of the the the. The famous quotation is black women are the mules of the world, right? Expected to uh, labor and without complaint and have, you know, little consideration for their for their well-being. Um, you know, so it's a pretty straightforward uh, symbolism. But but Zora, as she char- does so characteristically, resists um, all kinds of constraint. Right. So there's that symbol. But then there's, you know, the characters who are so much more. Uh, uh, Abram, Hurston is quite quotable. Um, and I want to discuss one of her most famous quotes, an excerpt from How It Feels to Be Colored Me, uh, reading in part, quote, but I am not tragically colored. There's no great sorrow damned up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes, end quote. Uh, again, I, I'm trying to connect this or see if this is connected to uh, Zora Neale Hurston's uh, act of self-love that we see in their eyes we're watching God, or if it's something else. What are your thoughts? So I, I think the, the question, and, and I think Zora actually wrote about this, that at the time, and I think still today, it is imagined that Black people are the problem or are a problem or a, or a tragedy, when in reality, it's, it's anti-Black racism that is the problem. And, and so if you have been misled into believing that you are the problem, even du, du Bois in, in, in 1903 asked, how does it feel to be a problem? How, then the next step of that ideologically is, how does it feel to be a tragedy? Uh, how does it feel to be tragically colored? And, and, and Zora Neale Hurston was clear that, that Black people were not a problem, that Blackness was not the problem, that African-American culture, that Southern people, that Southern rural African-Americans were not problematic. What was problematic, what was the problem, was racism, was sexism. It's a point you also make in your writing. Uh, What a great conversation. I'm so grateful to the two of you as members of the Velshi Band Book Club. Thank you so much to Imani Perry, professor at Harvard University and author of the National Book Award winner, South to America, a journey below the Mason-Dixon to understand the soul of a nation. And Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and the author of numerous books, including the National Book Award winner, Stamped from the Beginning. Thank you for joining this meeting of the Velshi Band Book Club, but we're not done yet. We just had to feature one more bit of writing, something you've read in school, heard referenced time and time again over dinner and on the news, something that is as controversial as it is crucial, something that the former president, Donald Trump, argued to have, quote, terminated the U.S. Constitution. And I'm reading it all from the famous preamble, we the people, through to the 27th Amendment. Every American needs to hear it. You need to hear it. Thanks so much for listening. The writer and producer of this podcast is Hannah Holland. Our booking producer is Lily Corvo. Associate producers are Chanel Adams, Samantha Brown, Nicole McReynolds, and Jen Maris Perez. Production assistant is Eunice Adekoya. Our senior producers are Jared Blake, Dina Moss, and Alicia Conley. Rebecca Dryden is our executive producer. 
Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Our audio engineer is Cedric Wilson. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for Velshi Band Book Club wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. You can also catch Velshi on MSNBC every weekend at 10 a.m. Eastern. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.